0: Coco Seco! Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 123, and it's the beginning of a small mini-wander into the history of the island of Cuba. For those of you that have followed this podcast through most of its 122 previous episodes, well, you know I grew up in South Florida and Fort Lauderdale, to be exact, and I know very well a good part of the entire geography from West Palm Beach down to the Florida Keys. It was my stomping ground for a good part of my life. My parents came to Fort Lauderdale first back in 1946, then they left, and then they came back again in 1962 when I was just a year old. It was really just the beginning of the mass immigration that would reshape the entire culture of the South Florida area. I've never been to Cuba. I suppose the closest I've ever been is to take a deep dive down to the edge of the Atlantic Wall a short distance off the island of Cayman. The Great Wall is a favorite diving spot, and after hovering at about 115 feet of water in the Atlantic Ocean for a very short period of time, you get a chance to stare over the abyss that goes straight down 5,000 feet off the continental shelf in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. There's not much to see there, but it's quite eerie. The Cayman Islands are on the south side of Cuba, but closer to home, if you drive from Fort Lauderdale and head down through Miami and then through Homestead and finally get onto US-1 and meander down to the Florida Keys, you will eventually get to the southernmost point in the United States, and it's at the tip of Key West. There's even a tourist marker there to remind you of that when you get there. It's not too far from Hemingway's house in Key West. He was a lover of things Cuban as you probably know. You can't see anything but the deep blue ocean right there standing at the tip of terra firma, but just about 90 miles to the south lies the island of Cuba. Its history is rich, and in just a short 75-year period, its peoples and culture are now completely intermingled with the history of Miami and all of South Florida. I guess you could say I experienced a little bit of the history from afar, even though I was too young to know it at the time. But as I made my way in the world and entered the working world and spent a good part of it working in South Florida, I made a lot of friends down there, and many of them were Cuban-Americans. I'm going to tell you a little story. There is a tradition in Cuban culture, and it is cut from the same cloth as so many other incredible traditions of the Latin people. I will never forget the moment when my wife and I were late for a wedding that was virtually on the campus of Mercy Hospital in Miami. It was a beautiful day in Miami at a beautiful Catholic church, and as usual, we were running a little bit late, and the drive down was at least an hour from where we were living at the time. We raced down Interstate 95, the main expressway in South Florida, frightfully worried that we would get there just after the bride made her way down the aisle waves of embarrassment continued to repeat through our heads as we maneuvered through traffic to try and shave, um, I don't know, maybe a few minutes off the drive. Well, we arrived at the wedding and lo and behold, there were only a handful of individuals yet in the church. We soon came to understand that a traditional Cuban wedding never goes off on time. And in the more traditional circumstances, it may even occur an hour or two later or even more than that after what the scheduled time is on the invite simply put the reasons for that relate to a deep tradition it's all about making the groom wait patiently for the woman of his dreams to eventually arrive and enter into matrimony well we sat around for quite some time and i don't know what exactly the time interval was but i guess maybe about an hour and eventually, the church filled, and that little piece of Latin culture that almost everyone in the church that day knew, except us, allowed us to be on time for a very special event. In fact, it allowed us to be early, quite early. I tell you the story because it's one of a handful, uh, or really a huge basket full of thoughts and experiences that I have had over the years that have endeared me culturally to my Latin friends in South Florida. As an Italian, I understand the idea of expressing a deep emotional connection in ways that all can see. And growing up there in the 1960s and 1970s, I got a chance to see and personally experience the gut-wrenching impact that occurred to a lot of Cuban refugees who made their way to American soil. Some of them entirely sophisticated and elegant in their social status, and others less fortunate in life and simply a product of the Mariel Boatlift. I got to see it. From elegant black tie events to running a jackhammer, I got a chance to interact along the way with people who had given up their homeland and their way of life to come to this country. And they had done it because they had been run out of town, literally thrown out of the country by Fidel Castro who always espoused revolution in the name of the people. But in the end, he became a garden variety dictator in the name of communism. And by the way, I'm not just taking editorial right about the jackhammer comment. One summer in college, I worked on a construction crew in Miami, and I spent a good part of my day jackhammering. By my side was a refugee. I presume a Marielle Boatlift refugee, but I'm not Sure. My guess is that he was recently fresh off the boats and somehow was at a point where he escaped the entanglement that went along with the chrome Detention Center or other efforts to keep the refugees from dispersing into society. He spoke little English and I spoke little Spanish, and so together we spoke little language to each other. But he was happy and cheerful to have a job and to shovel the rubble after I broke it up on the ground we were working on. He taught me Spanish curse words. And I taught him a little English. It was a moment of bonding in a way with little talk involved. Still, so many other interactions would reinforce how multiple generations of the families of my friends settled in Miami with their hearts broken as they emigrated from Cuba. And in many cases, left everything they owned behind, coming with almost nothing in hand and starting over, leaving friends and family behind, leaving their whole lives behind yet determined to make a life here in the States. With the younger ones learning and speaking perfect English as a second language and the older generation continuing to speak Spanish only. The shops in Little Havana peppered with all Spanish signs and my own fond memories of going there to have a bite to eat at one of the famous restaurants on Cayocho. And I would do that if I was working nearby or perhaps before a Miami Dolphin game or a Miami Hurricane football game at the Orange Bowl. In those early days, there was much effort by the Cubans to replant themselves in Miami, but there was also a frantic and feverish desire by the adults of that season and generation to go back to Cuba and to reclaim it from Fidel Castro. It had been raped and pillaged for many, many years by more than one leader and certainly by Batista before Castro. But what Castro did to take everything away from these hardworking, industrious, and generally middle-to-upper-class and educated Cubans was unthinkable in their minds. Mine, too. I was just a kid in the 1960s, but even then, the narrative in the story of Cuba from South Florida I still remember. Even then, I understood, at that tender age at least a little bit, about the visceral circumstance under which these folks came to this country and how much they wanted to go back and reclaim the place where they had come from. It really doesn't take much to understand why the Cubans in Miami and South Florida at that time were so violently opposed to Castro. If you lived in it and experienced the emotion of it and how it impacted real lives of real people, you might say it was almost a no-brainer in the end. And that was the generation that had real skin in the game when it came to taking whatever action was necessary to reclaim their homeland. Think about the Ukrainians today when you're trying to make a comparison. If there was ever anyone who was going to die on a beach on the south side of Cuba at a place called the Bay of Pigs, In an attempt to retake the island, it was going to be men from this generation, and so many of them hadn't gone any farther than Miami as they boarded boats and planes to leave the country in the late 1950s and early 1960s. That was the natural resting place for most of them. But fast forward some 30 and 40 years later, the flame that was that passion at that time, well, it had subsided. Out, out, brief candle is Shakespeare would say. The men and women of Cuba had come to Miami and they had children and their children would have children and they would claim the city and the region as their own. They would change the character and the composition in South Florida forever and they would make it a richer place in their own style and they would now tell stories of generations of humans past who fought valiantly to try and overthrow Castro but never succeeded and some of those stories included the loss of their own family members and loved ones. The new generation speaks perfect English and are well-established within the blended cultures that exist today in South Florida. Most of them are bilingual, and the Cubans are the dominant demographic in Miami today, accounting for more than 70% of the population. It's their town now, and while you can still go to a little Havana, It doesn't take a passport to get there, and there is no socialist regime or communist regime looking over your shoulder. Sadly, in some ways, or perhaps a healthy ending to the tragic advance of the 1960s and a healing that comes only through more history that accrues over time, these new generations are not interested in taking up an arm and storming the beach and toppling Castro and rolling back communism. Time has done that for them now. But sadly, Castro's passing did not usher in a new revolution of freedom for the Cubans on the island. There is no current moment of Carpe Diem, at least not yet. A trip back will find the place almost frozen in time in some ways. A while back, one of my dear friends, a man I worked with in the hospital business and who was a Cuban-American, made his way back to Cuba. He was born there and grew up there before the revolution. He is older than me, and at the time he went, I guess he was maybe about 70. The rules were such right then that he could return to the island as he still had one living relative there, an aunt who was in her 90s, I believe. In telling the story of his return over dinner one night, he would recount the moment he made his way back to the town he grew up in, in a sleepier part of the island and not in Havana. His family had great wealth, I think, as they were major players in the sugar cane business, and it had all been lost, all taken away, before they were forced to flee. In one moment, he shared, it was an eerie punctuation to how time there really had stood still. He stared straight at the front of the elementary schoolhouse he had studied in some 60 years before. It had not changed one bit. Older, dirtier, more tired, but still frozen in time. It was for him the essence of what he had lost, what had laid still, what had decayed, and what might never change in his lifetime. After a few moments of reflection, staring at the emblem of his childhood, he would get back into the car and the driver would resume what might be his last tour of Cuba before he headed back to the place he now called home. Tearful? Well... I am not sure. My friend was not generally the tearful type. But one thing I know, he was pensive when he shared that story with me, and he did it over dinner. And over dinner, he had a tear in his eye, now that he was back in the comfort of his new home in South Florida and in his new country, the United States. Only it wasn't new to him anymore. It was now just home. As I said earlier, I've never been to Cuba. But someday, I really want to go. Thanks for letting me go on that nostalgic little wander. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 123 of JFK The Enduring Secret. Christopher Columbus was not the first settler to hit the beaches of this island. But Columbus did land in Cuba in 1492 as part of his voyage to the New World, and he claimed the land for Spain. Originally, Cuba was settled by indigenous people from South America. Columbus named the land Juana, but later it would be called Cuba, which comes from the local Native American name of Coabana. The first Spanish settlement on Cuba was Baracoa, which was founded by Diego Velazquez de Cuellar in 1511. It was about 20 years after Columbus first set foot on the island. As Cuba became more settled by the Spanish, they developed industries of sugarcane, tobacco, and cattle, among others. In that intervening time between Columbus and when Diego Velazquez established Baracoa, which was again the first settlement in Cuba, the entire coast of Cuba was at first fully mapped by the Spanish navigator, Sebastian de Ocampo. The mapping would occur in 1509 in advance of the settlement, and the establishment of the settlement itself would occur in 1511. As we all know, this wasn't the only place that Columbus would make a stop, as he also went to the island of Hispaniola. And of course, that was all in his continuous quest to find a shorter route to India. And in the beginning... He thought the island might be a peninsula of the Asian mainland. Oh, how far we've come from that moment. A lot of people wonder where Christopher Columbus actually touched down. You know, where was the actual first landfall? And many believe it was probably at Barrier hoguin province, which was on the eastern point of the island. Before Columbus got to Cuba, he took a small stop at the Bahamas. And from there, he sailed south to find this gem in the Caribbean. Same thing happens today for people who have a big enough boat. Columbus went back in 1494, just two years later, passing along the south coast of the island, landing at various inlets, including what was to become the now famous Guantanamo Bay. It's hard to believe that the world would work this way, but there was a papal bull of 1493, and Pope Alexander VI commanded Spain to conquer, colonize, and convert those pagans of the new world to Catholicism. As he came ashore in Cuba, Columbus would see the original dwelling huts that were made by the native Tainos. They were what you might normally find in the Caribbean in the more rural areas, houses with palm frond roofs, but they were beautiful nevertheless in that classic Caribbean look. For whatever reason, Cuba was not the first place that the Spanish began to settle. It was actually the island of Hispaniola, which is the big island east of Cuba, probably just because of the geographic juxtaposition of that being closer to Europe. Regardless, it didn't take the Spanish long after they established permanent settlements in Hispaniola to turn around and conquer the entire island of Cuba. In some ways, what happened there was kind of a little like a movie that Mel Brooks should have made. There was a Taino chieftain named Hatui, who hailed from the island of Hispaniola and fled to Cuba to get away from the conquering Spanish, or probably more accurately, fled to find a place to regroup. And just about the time he put the last palm frond on the roof of his new house, well, guess what? The Spanish showed up on his doorstep right there in Batacoa. It turned into a guerrilla campaign, as only Indians can do, but the Spanish were pretty good at capturing the Indians and burning them alive at the stake, and that they did. And finally, when enough of the Indians were fleshed out and killed or sent running, the Spanish established the settlement of Havana in 1514. There were three more chieftains after Hatui, and all came crisply to an end. And yes, pun intended. What ensued yet next was the usual butchering that happened so often in North America where there were massacres initiated by the invaders as the Spanish swept over the island and probably one of the biggest, most notable ones was near a place called Camagüey, all the inhabitants of a little village called Caono. It was about 3,000 indigenous Indians that had formed a village there and that decided that they would gather up loads of fresh fish and other foodstuffs in order to pay tribute to the arriving Spanish. And as they approached, they got something less than a cordial greeting. In the end, they were all slaughtered, and as some would say, without provocation. The remaining survivors fled to the hills or, in some cases, simply left Cuba and went to the surrounding islands. Some of those who fleed were eventually caught and placed on reservations similar to what happened in other parts of North America. One famous one was named Guanabacoa, which is now, ironically, just a suburb of Havana. History really does repeat itself, and there is a pattern. In reality, the story is not that much different than ours here at home in the U.S. It was a difficult relationship between the indigenous Indian tribes who preceded the Spaniard conquistadors from Europe. Just like in the United States, there was, at the end of the day, some cooperation between the two groups. The Spanish were shown by the native Taino tribes how to nurture tobacco and consume it in the form of cigars. For anyone who studies history, it should be no surprise that these European conquerors favored beautiful women who were natives on the island. In the modern world, now that we have DNA testing, it's pretty clear that those conquistadors, well, at least some of them, were not too anxious to get back home. They settled right in with the females on the island, and what a mixture they made. The creamy colored skin of those peoples is another beautiful hue of the people of the Caribbean and South America. But in the end, the indigenous populations of Cuba and other nearby islands were essentially destroyed, along with their culture, after around 1550. The Spanish did what so many foreign invaders did in that era. They made a point of segregating the indigenous descendants of Cuban Taino families And they did so in several locations, mostly in eastern Cuba, where there were a handful of camps. And actually, Guantanamo is one such location. While their civilization did not survive, there is much of the native vernacular, which remains today in the Cuba version of Spanish. Today, there are a plethora of Taino tribal terms, places and names found in the Spanish spoken on the island, all derived from the original Taino language. As I said, it was the Spanish who established sugar and tobacco as Cuba's primary products, and the island soon supplanted Hispaniola as the prime island in the Caribbean from which Spain would rely on. But as it often did and often does, the practicality of finding labor to attend to the crops soon became a significant concern. African slaves were then imported to work the plantations as field labor. However, there was even more complications for Cuba. That's all for today, folks. Join us in episode 124 for a continuation of the early history of Cuba. Thank you for listening to episode 123 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.